verses 22 to 26. 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 22. Hear the word of our God. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that your word would speak today, that you would guide my words and thoughts. Father, that you'd open our minds and our hearts to embrace your word, that you would speak, that your Holy Spirit would convict, that you would teach us. We thank you, Father, that you've given us your word, and you have told us, Father, that you will sanctify us in the truth. Your word, Father, is truth. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. My friends, we must let the Bible speak in its clarity to us. We must recognize that wherever we continue to dabble in sin, in that area, we have been taken captive by the devil. And we do the devil's will. Paul uses the image of a slave. When we give in to temptation, we become like galley slaves. You remember those great ships of the past. They were used in the Mediterranean world by the powers there to fight their navy battles. There we find ourselves sitting next to other slaves. How did we get here? Oh yeah, we were fighting the enemy, but we were taken alive. We were taken in battle, we've become prisoners of war. We are now galley slaves, chained to the bench, and forced to row in support of the enemy's cause. Paul also implies a second image, which may be more applicable. We are like a man who has gotten drunk. We may wake up tomorrow only to realize that we have done many things in our drunken stupor, which we are now greatly ashamed of. And rather than becoming sober and dealing with our problems, we get drunk again. I know, in the moment, sin can seem so pleasurable, but afterwards there is great shame when I have realized that I have not furthered my Lord's kingdom, but have promoted the enemy's plan. You also struggle with sin, and it is my duty to remind you that there are no trivial sins. 
When we sin, we are captured by Satan. We become slaves. We are used by Satan to advance his kingdom. We are in bondage, continuing in our drunken stupor, unwilling to sober up. But God has provided, through his church, a process by which we may be released from the devil's spell. And we may see things the way they really are. Now today I will treat two perspectives in this sermon. One, our need to be corrected and to escape the devil's snare. But secondly, our responsibility, which will be different for each individual, but our responsibility to correct others, that they also may escape. I will often move back and forth between these two ideas. A little bit of background. Paul is giving advice to the relatively young pastor, Timothy. Timothy has to deal with men in the church who are causing controversy and division by the way they argue about words which are useless and bring ruin on those who hear them. These teachers have even come to wrong conclusions about doctrine. How will Timothy handle this? In verse 22, we touched on this last time I spoke to you. Flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Timothy is being told he must not operate the way these false teachers operate. He must run away from the temptations that come to young leaders. These are not particularly sexual or sensual desires, though the Bible elsewhere tells us to flee from these. Specifically here is the temptation to pride, self-confidence, hastiness. The situation seems to be that these other leaders in the church who are causing divisions by their arguments because they want to feel important, they want to have people following them, They made a defense or an argument over words in verse 14. I take this to mean that they grasped at one word here or there, and then they built a whole theology on one little definition. They don't care about building people up. They just want to look good, to look smart, and to sound good. They don't notice that what they're proposing is not useful, but rather destroys those who are listening. There remains then a temptation for young leaders to vain glory and to appearances rather than to love and peace. Now verse 22 serves as a transition in Paul's thoughts. Timothy is to run from these immature desires. He is not to be like his opponents. The verses that follow were explain how Timothy is to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. He must pursue righteousness. That is, his code of conduct is God's law. The church will be built according to God's orders. Timothy is to pursue faith. He must believe that God can give him strength to walk in the way that he should go. 
And as we will see, Timothy is also to believe that God can grant repentance to those who oppose the message. God can set people free from the snare of the devil. Timothy is to pursue love. Those who oppose him are following their own desires, but Timothy is to have compassion on them because they have been duped. He is to pursue peace, not controversy. It means a willingness to endure wrong treatment for the sake of the truth. He is to have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies, for you know that they breed quarrels. Now, how is Timothy to flee these immature desires? He is to avoid questions that do not proceed from a trained way of thinking. He is to consider himself to be a slave of God, entrusted with a precious deposit, the historic doctrines of the gospel. Now, by historic, I mean that the teachings of Scripture, which were worked out in the historic events of the Old Testament, through the drama of Scripture, all the way up through the founding of the New Testament church, the basic teachings, which are summarized in the Christian creeds and confessions. It is historic in the sense that it looks back to those who walked before us. But it is also historical in the sense that it is a claim to actual events. The Jews really did leave Egypt and walk through Sinai to the Promised Land. Jesus really was born on a particular day in history to the Virgin Mary. He was actually crucified by Pontius Pilate. And he did, in fact, rise from the dead. By doctrine, I mean simply the truth claims of the Bible, which is a gospel, a good news. That good news is preached everywhere in Scripture, beginning with Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Historically, this first proclamation of God's covenant of grace is worked out as the drama of the Bible unfolds. This is what we are to cling to. This is to what we are to teach. And Timothy is being told, as he teaches, that he must be kind, he must teach well, he must endure evil treatment, and correct his opponents with gentleness. He is to hope that through his faithfulness, God will grant repentance and set people free from the snare of the devil. And this leads us to God's word for us today. The Bible's message is one of great hope, but it begins with some bad news. There are important truths in Scripture, here an uncomfortable one. Individuals, even those in the church, have been taken alive by the devil. They have been chained in his galleys. They have been ensnared. And now they serve him and accomplish his will.
The good news is there is a way to break these chains, to release the snare, a way to cancel the spell that the devil has placed on us so that we wake up in our right minds. There is a way to see the truth clearly, but it involves repentance. This also is an uncomfortable truth upon which Christianity insists. We were captured by the devil, forced to do his will. We lived as those who were drunk, out of control, and out of touch with reality. And yet we are responsible for our actions. This repentance, this change of mind to which we are called, is first a confession of our sins. We have rebelled against God. We have been taken captive. And in a sense, we did not resist the devil. We don't want to wake up. We don't want to admit our sins. We don't really want to leave them behind. This repentance to which we are called is a sovereign act of God's grace granted to us. If the gospel would let us grab hold of Christ, have the forgiveness of sins, and yet go on sinning, that would be most comfortable for us. But the gospel demands a change of mind and a change of heart, leading to a change of lifestyle. Repentance is an acknowledgement of our active rebellion against the Creator of the universe. It leads to an embracing of the truth. It means we come to accept as true what God has made so plain to us, the clear teaching of the Word of God, the historical articles of the Christian faith. But how can men be set free from the devil's snare? Men have been taken captive by the devil, but they can be set free from the devil by four means. They can be set free from the devil by the gentle correction of the Lord's slave. We noted already that repentance is something God must grant. But how is He going to grant that repentance? God will use normal people and the natural course of events. We call it ordinary means. A means is simply a tool or a process by which something is accomplished. By ordinary, we mean that it appears to others completely natural, perhaps according to the laws of physics. It does not seem supernatural or extraordinary. To be sure, God can act in a supernatural way. In fact, we'll see. He must act in a supernatural way. He is not confined in the box of the universe. He's the creator of the universe. And yet, he delights to work through the ordinary. Perhaps one of the reasons is that he is calling out a people. He is molding and crafting them to be a certain sort of people. Therefore, he calls each of them to play certain roles in his kingdom. In God's plan, our decisions and our actions matter. He is restoring to us the image of God, which we lost in the fall. He is returning to us the dominion which He had given us in the very beginning. Therefore, 
We reflect God by ruling over creation on His behalf. And the leaders of our church also reflect God when they lead according to His principles. But notice what God says about His leaders. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. In our day, the word servant comes with some negative connotations. But in fact, the word is perhaps better translated slave. And for our culture, that term is anathema. Freedom is the cry of our society. But there is a need for us, first of all, to be committed to the idea that we are slaves of God. Perhaps the difference between Timothy and his opponents is that these opponents have seized power on their own terms. But Timothy exercises a delegated authority. He has submitted himself to the lordship of Christ. He is not free to do whatever he pleases with his authority. He is the Lord's servant. In the final analysis, there will only be two types of people. C.S. Lewis has written in his book, The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. What Lewis didn't say, but which he implied, is that those who insist on their will against God's are not ultimately free. They are not masters of their own destinies. They are taken captive by the devil, and they do his will. There are only two types of people, those who serve God and those who serve the enemy. And our lives are imperfect. At times, we submit to God, but at other times, we continue to do the devil's will. This teaching is becoming more and more out of sync with our culture. The nature of true freedom is not an autonomy, but rather that the creature finds true meaning and purpose in submission to the Creator. Christian freedom consists in being a slave to God. The question is not whether we are slaves, but which master would we have? The holy, righteous, and loving Creator? Or Satan? the devil, the deceiver. We note in our theology that there are in fact three enemies of the Christian. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These other two, the flesh and the world, might think that they are independent entities. But inasmuch as they opposed God, they do the devil's will. Satan was the one who tempted mankind to sin and to join him in rebellion against the true God. If we realized that the sin we were about to commit was equal to signing ourselves up to be a galley slave, would we be so quick to give in? We let ourselves be chained to the bench, we pick up the oar, we thought we were exercising our own autonomy. Perhaps it was the flesh, those desires that come from within us, that nature 
we received from Adam in the fall. It induced us to exert our influence over those around us in the church. We didn't care that we were promoting schism or opposing our elders. Perhaps it was the influence of the world, that human system that opposes God's kingdom, inducing us by its propaganda to act in a way unbecoming of God's servants. Perhaps because of this propaganda, we imagine that the authority structures in the church operate on the same principles as in the world, namely self-promotion and the struggle for power. In either case, the flesh or the world may have brought about sin in us independently of Satan. Remember, Satan can only be in one place at any given time. And his demons may be near uncountable, but they are still finite. But in any case, whether the flesh or the world induced us to sin, when we oppose God's will and His kingdom, we accomplish the will of the devil. But a question is raised. When we become slaves of God, do we become merely automatons, robots, puppets? Do we have no choices to make? Is there no way to express our individuality? We saw last week, well, two weeks ago, that God has in His house a variety of dishes or vessels. Or to borrow another of Paul's analogies, the body of Christ has many parts, and each has a unique function. We have plenty of choices to make. There are many ways that each of us serve our roles in God's kingdom. And Christian leaders are tasked with teaching us how to make choices that properly glorify God, how to exercise our unique gifts for the good of Christ's body. These teachers, like Timothy, have committed themselves to being God's slaves, and they are to correct those who oppose them with gentleness. But if we find ourselves opposing others in the church, we must consider whose purposes are we furthering. Are we furthering God's purpose or the devil's purpose? Consider how gently the leaders of the church correct us. They point us back to God, to His glory, and it should be our delight to repent and submit. But this may take time as people wrestle with the issues and struggle against their desires. And this leads us to our second point. Men have been taken captive by the devil, but they can be set free from the snare of the devil by the patient endurance of the Lord's soldier. Correction involves patience. It takes time, and I would add much prayer, before people are willing to admit that they are wrong, before people are willing to change. The problem is that we don't want to be corrected. The difficulty of correction within the church is that it isn't just like a teacher correcting a test with a couple wrong answers. The fall has affected our faculties. 
when we are corrected, affections and emotions rise up. We get defensive. Maybe we even respond with evil. Therefore, in verse 24, the Lord's servant must patiently endure evil. And this brings us to a dilemma in the text. How should we translate verse 25? Should it be in gentleness correcting his opponents if perchance God should grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth? Or should it be in gentleness correcting those who are opposing lest God should grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth? Our ESV translation sidesteps this problem and simply places a period there. They don't even try to translate the Greek word. And the problem is that the word is translated lest, or so that, 23 out of 25 times. The KJV translates it, if pre-adventure. What's the difference? Is Paul encouraging Timothy to do these things with the hope that God would intervene and bring men to repentance? Or is Paul preparing Timothy for the difficulty of the task by pointing out that these people are resisting because they don't want to come to repentance? The context leads me to conclude that Paul is warning Timothy that he must be patient, enduring evil by men who are opposing him because they are afraid that God may work repentance in them. They don't want to repent. They don't want to concede that they don't really have the truth and that Timothy does. They don't want to admit that they have been taken captive by the devil. So the knowledge of the truth here is not that they don't have any facts about the truth, that they don't understand it at all. They do because Timothy has been teaching it to them. But they keep opposing it because they want to go on in their youthful desires. This is an example of what Paul has said in general in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. These teachers have the truth, but they suppress it. He will say later in Romans 1, Though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. The problem with these men in 2 Timothy is that they've heard enough of the Word, they've understood enough of it to know that they are called to leave certain ways behind. They are unwilling, and therefore they create arguments about useless ideas so they do not have to deal with their own sins. They are suppressing the truth. But God can grant them repentance. And He does so as His servant patiently endures evil. He works slowly but forcefully to subdue our fears and to bring us to His truth. But patience from our leaders alone on its own, will not bring people to embrace correction. People must be taught clearly, one step at a time, until they see their error and understand the truth. And this brings us to our third point. 
Men have been taken captive by the devil, but they can be set free from the snare of the devil by the apt teaching of the Lord's tutor. Do you see that instead of arguments flowing from an undisciplined and untrained mind, the Lord's slave is to be able to teach? He must begin with a solid foundation and build one precept on another. Some of you may know that I'm a flight instructor working to become a pastor. Good flight instructors have a way of finding out what people know and then building upon their previous knowledge and experience to help the pilot in training to learn new things. Not so good instructors often bring words and ideas without context or connection to the student's previous experience. In these cases, the student must learn in spite of his instructor. But a good instructor begins with the student's experience and teaches foundational truths, principles about how an airplane flies, about physics and human behavior. He teaches students not only knowledge and skills, but how to make proper decisions as a pilot. And the same is true in the church. We must be trained to think properly. Not all of us will be teachers, but all of us have a responsibility to read the Bible for ourselves and embrace its truth. The dilemma, the Bible as the revelation of God includes a message of good news about how God saves sinners like me. It tells us how to train ourselves for godliness, and yet our ungodliness affects the way we read and respond to the truths of the Bible. To put it simply, the Bible contains the truth that would set us free from sin, but sin darkens our mind so that we distort and misuse God's truth. How are we to train our minds in God's truth? We must lay a foundation of knowledge. We must recognize that the Bible doesn't just give us a loosely connected set of facts about God or about salvation. The Bible sets forth a foundation of knowledge. God is the source of all facts. Not just because He knows the facts, but because He's the Creator. And He created all things about which we have facts. He has an intimate knowledge of everything, including Himself. The Bible makes assertions about what man is. And this includes the initial state of man in paradise, made in the image of God, man's fall into sin, and the state of those who have been born again in Christ by the Holy Spirit. This anthropology asserts that there is a moral connection between who we are, what we do, and what we know. The church's job then is not merely to proclaim a set of facts about God or about redemption, but we must come to grips with the condition of man's hearts and minds The goal is the transformation of the whole man, his heart, soul, mind, and body. Knowledge does not begin with mere facts, but says the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge.
And the problem is, there is no fear of God before our eyes. Where does this fear of God come from? Our teachers and our preachers, they present to us the God of Scripture. Through their teachings, we glimpse God's glory. and We begin to see our danger before a holy God. We begin to see rightly our rebellion against our Creator. According to Romans 1, our response to this light is to suppress it. This is the connection between our moral state and our knowledge. It's not that we don't know anything. We have lots of facts about the world around us. Our health, our jobs, our way of living. But when we consider the foundation that holds all our facts together, there are gaping holes where we will not let our minds go. If our way of thinking does not start with God as the source of the laws of logic and moral absolutes, we will be left with these ignorant controversies like Timothy's opponents. Our teachers then are presenting to us the Creator God in all of His glory. And they have resources to help them teach. For example, we use the Westminster Shorter Catechism as a training aid. Through this, we teach young minds to think God's thoughts after Him. This catechism not only presents the facts of our doctrine in a series of questions and answers, but it reveals a way of thinking that builds one precept upon another. It takes seriously the foundational principle, and then it asks the next logical question. For example, the first question, a foundational question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The next question is the logical outworking of this answer. What rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Catechism is showing us how to move from one answer to the next question. It is also showing us that we must presuppose the existence of God if we are to make any progress in knowing Him. We must assume that God and God alone can give or reveal to us what we are to believe and what we are to do so that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him. The Catechism gives the answer. The Word of God contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament is the only rule to direct us. But there remains a need for our teachers to engage our people not only intellectually, but affectionately. We must touch not only the mind, but also the heart. And this brings us to our next point. Men have been taken captive by the devil, but they can be set free from the snare of the devil by the kindness of the Lord's servant. The emphasis on kindness here should not be surprising. Who will listen to our message if we come with sharp words? if we show no compassion. Surely our methods must match our message. If we proclaim a gospel, a good news of God's grace and mercy, but we come with heavy-handedness, we may undo 
with one hand what we are trying to do with the other. As we noted at the beginning, verse 22 serves as a transition and summary of the particular points that follow. Thus, kindness echoes the love which we are to pursue. Do we care enough about the people around us to correct them? Do we care enough to tell them of the dreadful consequences of opposing God? It is not that we just love people as they are, or tell them that God loves all people, He wants what's best for your life, come just as you are. No, in compassion, we must teach the truth. We must warn people that God's wrath against sin is coming. And we do this with a certain sobriety, knowing that we who teach will be held to a higher standard. We teach men and women that they must not presume upon the kindness of God, but that God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. As leaders, we are aware that we too are sinners, and we know that God's kindness has led us to repentance. And thus we fight against the lies of the devil. We see people deceived and in bondage, and we strive to teach them the truth, God's truth, that they might be set free. We don't overlook sin. We teach about a holy God who comes in mercy, but who comes and corrects His children. We teach clearly the seriousness of sin and its destructive consequences. In our kindness, we pray that God will open the eyes of the blind, will grant them repentance, that they may wake up in a sober mind, seeing the truth, and find freedom. We can be set free from the snare of the devil. In fact, those who have been united to Christ have been declared to be free from the power of Satan. We have been set free by the work of the Lord's servant, Jesus Christ himself. We can be set free from the snare of the devil by the kindness of the Lord's servant. Jesus came to do the Father's will. He did not come to did he not come to offer to us the riches of his kingdom? Does he not extend an invitation for those who chafe under the slavery of the devil? an invitation to make us children of God? He has shown us much kindness. We have been set free from the snare of the devil by the apt teaching of the Lord's tutor. Just as Christ taught his apostles, who wrote down what they learned, so these apostles taught men who came after them. And we now learn from them. We follow our elders and our pastors as they follow in the steps of Timothy and Paul, who followed Christ. We have been set free from the snare of the devil by the patient endurance of Christ. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took the just punishments for our sins upon himself. He was killed as an offering, a sacrifice to God on our behalf. And he rose from the dead... We have been set free by the snare of the devil, by the gentle correction of God's Spirit. Christ sent us His Spirit to convict us of sin, 
to give us strength, that sin might be put to death, that we might be sanctified. Let us thank God for His great salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You have borne patiently with us when we were Your enemies. We pray, Father, that You teach us to grow up in the faith, to walk close with You, to pursue righteousness, faith, peace, and love. Father, let us bear with our sins longing for the day when we are resurrected never to sin again. Thank you, Father. Amen.